Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Smart Council. This episode is one of a series of lectures that I delivered in a class setting. The class was an introduction to addictions, and the context was a master's in counseling program at a Protestant university. Given this context, the episodes are longer, live, and a bit more organic than normal. You may hear gaps in conversation. These represent where I paused to interact with a student question, but opted to edit out their voice for privacy, you know. Otherwise, uh, this is me having the most fun public speaking that I can imagine. Uh, so thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Good afternoon, good day, good morning, good evening, whenever you're tuning in. Uh, again, my name is Reese Basimio. I am the, the instructor for uh, Introduction Overview to Addictions, COU 655 at the Master's in Counseling Program in Multnomah University. And addictions is the most fun topic in counseling to talk about, which is why I'm talking about it, because I like it. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, so again, we are uh, tracking through, we're uh, exploring, first of all, what is the question of what is addiction? And we're looking at a variety of different models and conceptualizations of what addiction is, and uh, each one emphasizing different things. Each one has some uh, limitations and some things to offer. So uh, last time we talked about the uh, moral slash criminal model, uh, as well as the, the temperance model. The, again, the temperance model is the one that says uh, there's something uh, hijacking, toxic, uh, addictive in and of the substance itself. Um, and that is looking at substances primarily and doesn't really factor in uh, behaviors such as uh, sex, eating, gambling, etc. Uh, although the field has grown past that at this point. And the moral criminal model, again, is the one that says the, the main problem is that 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 dirty rotten deviant addict and um it'll be very punitive in that sort of nature and uh, we looked a bit at how those particular models are integral integral in the um the war on drugs which um has very sharp penalties for uh, drug use drug possession and tends to respond to the drug problem with punishment um and as you look into it they uh uh, try to address the problem by creating conditions for the addicted person which actually only further and intensify the addictive process themselves. So uh, again, um, why is this important? Knowing, knowing what you believe about addiction and what you believe that it is. Um, belief, dictate, belief dictates action. Belief certainly dictates policy and the policies we, choo we choose. And um, there are definitely remnants of this war on drugs in our current uh, system of addressing addiction um, you know agencies drug courts they they all um, they, they all they all make reference to this so so today we're going to 
watch me do my share screen. And okay, so we're going to look at some other models um, of what addiction is. Primarily, we're going to look at the biomedical model and the disease model, uh, but we'll touch on a couple others very briefly as well. So uh, here's one where um, I had not heard of this one before beginning this research this round, uh, but it came up once, so we'll give it, give it one, one mention. Uh, the, the Enlightenment model, uh, it says the person is responsible for developing the problem but not for solving it, the problem of addiction. Uh, the higher power is responsible for solving the problem. The person is responsible for cultivating a relationship with the higher power. Um, there's an aspect of that that's popular with the 12 subculture where um, they really drive home the, uh, the powerlessness aspect, um, but not quite like powerless, hopeless, more just like powerless, I need something outside of me. So that's, I guess, one model of recovery. And I saw a mention of it once in one place, so I thought I'd bring it here. Uh, more interesting for our purposes. Um, let's see, okay. Uh, so the genetic model, uh, or and and this one isn't a complete one on its own, uh, but by any means, so we won't spend a whole lot of time here. But the this idea that there is an addictive gene, or there's something about our very gen genetic DNA structure that makes us especially susceptible to addiction. Uh, there was one statistic that says 40 to 60 percent of susceptibility to addiction may be a result of genetic factors, including uh, gene environment interactions. So not just who are your parents and their parents and their parents, but also what's the environment you grow up in. Uh, and we we could say there there definitely is a lot to 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 to, to consider there, because genes do matter. That the genetic and the epigenetic payload, um, they the, those are pretty powerful forces. Um, like if you know, like your parent and their parent and their parent and their parent all had diabetes, you might think, hey, I might be, I might, I might have to watch for that and make some different life choices, uh, that sort of thing. There, so, so there's some value to that. Um, the, we'd say again, the problem, the problem with addiction in this model is it's with, with the genes, it's with the parents, it's with something internal, and the solution. Uh, I mean, who knows? Probably something medication or technology related. Um, I know when they are talking about epigenetics, they talk about gene therapy a little bit, and I don't know where they're at with that as far as treating addictions, but there's, there, there's this, there's this holy grail, I suppose, of being able to find the gene for everything, for every problem. And, and again, it would be nice to be able to point to something external and say, aha, it's that thing that that's the problem. Um, that tends to be a way of, um, maybe avoiding personal responsibility, um, but it's, it's nice, it's nice, it's nice to be able to say, here's the thing, here's the answer. And there, there's something tantalizing about being able to find a gene for things within this model. We might say addiction is inevitable potentially. And I don't know that everybody would specifically say this, but there is sort of that, that tone that you have to not say anyway. Uh, if it, if it's your body, if it's how you built, then, uh, it, it kind of does feel inevitable that you're going to run it, you know, do addiction or be vulnerable to it anyway. We'd say the person is maybe a victim of their own lineage. Um, pros to this model, it can be non-shaming and non-condemning because it's not your fault. It's in the genes. It's your parents' fault. We'll blame and shame them. So we could call that a pro. I don't know that, that that's a healthy pro, but we could do that. Uh, the cons, with uh, it's got a limited scope. There's limited solutions, and I would say it could be a disempowering approach too, because 
if it's in the genes, I mean, I mean, you can't rip out those genes and 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 change that. So there's there's not a lot of power there. Uh, clinical implications. Um, it would be helpful to address victim mentality in a person and address learned helplessness and. Uh, you know, providing psychoeducation around epigenetics could be useful too, because there is an interaction between the genes and the environment and the life choices you make. So knowing that uh, can lead to some healthier lifestyle choices. Uh, spiritual integration points to, to consider. Um, here's where we here's where we could think about ancestral versus original sin. Uh, and so uh, and this this harkens back to some conversations with Saint Augustine uh, way back in the day. But for those um, for those of us uh, Christian people who actually for whom the word sin actually makes some some sense, it, the word the idea of sin doesn't make any sense outside of the church, really. So be careful where you use it. Um, so. Okay, so back on track, talking about uh, Augustine sin. So, so the idea of original sin is that we inherit the guilt of our ancestors, and particularly the the guilt from Adam, who uh, who committed the sin. Adam and Eve, they did it. They did it together. Uh, so that's a, that. That's a relatively new newer idea. New 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 with Augustine and those who followed him uh, was not actually the original teaching of the church. The original teaching of the church was more of an ancestral sin, and I think I'm. I think I'm getting these not mixed up. Um, but the idea is that we, we inherit the disease of sin, uh, but not any of the guilt. And uh, so, so, so again, there, there's that idea that we are predisposed to be able to, to sin, to act out in things, but it's not a guarantee for us in the same way. And so we're all ultimately held responsible only for our own actions and our own deeds. And so and I think an idea like that might fly in the face of the genetic model, uh, which might say, hey, your ancestors did it, so you're going to do it. Um, I, I would say, you know, Christian thought in particular allows the option, allows quite a bit of the option to um, transcend your urges and transcend your lineage. So that's just something to think about there. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the fun stuff for today. So the uh, biomedical model or the disease model, uh, this is what we really want to talk about. Um, so what this model says is that drug addiction is a disease of the brain. Addiction hijacks the brain. Addiction is a chronic but treatable condition, and relapse is frequent, but same as with any other condition where uh, the individual fails to adhere to treatment. Uh, so in many ways, I, I would say this model is a vast improvement over the moral criminal model uh, in that it's primary goal is not to punish the addict and it's not uh, limited to the scope of just like avoiding drugs uh, necessarily but but it recognizes hey there's there's a person there's a story there's brain chemistry and so there, there are a, a lot of improvements to this model and, and what this offers um, for those of us who are going to be practicing counseling the disease model is sort of um, I'd say like the disease model and the biopsychosocial model are sort of the the pillars of how we understand addictions treatment and what gets practiced for sure in the in the agency setting and um, and when you inter inter interface with insurance companies, um, they'll they'll be looking at, at terms like this and everything. So uh, so looking a little bit more closely, uh, like we say, uh, drug addiction it's a disease of the brain. Uh, uh, Dr. Kevin McCauley will say it's a disease of choice, 
when you watch the the pleasure unwoven video he'll get into a lot of the the brain science and why that is um that video by the way is very very heavily advocating for the disease model um which is not bad and it's not wrong it's just I mean, there, there, there's some limits to it, but it's it's still really good information because it has to factor in the brain. Uh, and yeah, there's this idea that um, addiction it's a it's a chronic condition. It can escalate. It can intensify. It, there's kind of this idea that it doesn't ever quite go away, but it can definitely be managed. Again, kind of the same as as some other medical conditions. Um, and relapse happens the same with other medical conditions and relapse happens when you don't adhere to whatever your treatment protocol is so the the problem in this model is we could say a broken brain um, particularly the the pleasure and reward circuits and the the choice capacity something is wrong there and so you're not able <laughs> you, you're not able to make smart choices all of the time uh, or when you most need to uh, there's an impaired capacity for rational thought and rational choice. Um, a metaphor that is really useful in considering the, the disease model uh, is, is that of a waterfall. So uh, people who, who, are, who act out and they get caught in these cycles, they, they often talk about uh, hitting this, the, this point of no return where the, the th they're thinking about a thing and not wanting to do it, not wanting to do it. And then at some point before they actually do it, something shifts where they know they're going to do it. And then it's just a matter of time. So, so I use a metaphor so of Niagara Falls, and uh, with a little more planning, I could have had a picture. It would be great. But uh, so those of you who know that what Niagara Falls looks like, you know, big waterfall, lots of water, lots of mist. You know, very deadly. You go over the edge, you die. So if going over the edge and hitting the bottom is you're acting out, what you can say the the edge of the waterfall is like that point of no return. And so I would ask, so say you have your average typical figure, your 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 guy, your your lady who's in a canoe about 10 feet from the edge of the edge of the falls. I'm going to say, okay, does that person have a choice which way they're going to row? And you know, you might say <laughs> well, it'd be great to hear what everybody might say uh, if we were actually in person together. But um, the, the idea is that, yes, technically that person has a choice which way they row. Uh, is it a completely useless, functionless choice? Yes, also that too, because um, the flow is too great. Um, but you take that same person, that same canoe, say 10 miles upstream. Do, at that point, do they have a choice which way they're going to row? And we could say, yeah. They, they, they do. They, they can manage the current at that point, and they have, they have a functional choice. And probably they're going to retain that functional choice for, you know, seven or eight miles while they get, as they get closer to, to the falls. Um, but as they get closer to the falls, the, the current picks up, the force of it picks up, and, uh, and things start going faster and faster and faster until at some point, and it's different for everybody, uh, there is no longer capacity for rational thought, and you, your full choice capacity diminishes. And and I think that's a really important thing, uh, especially in comparison to the, like the moral, uh, the moral model approach. The that's a, that assumes that the the addicted person is just choosing to do this thing that's bad for them and choosing to make these violating choices. Um, in one sense, yes, they are, um, but on a whole lot of other senses, they, they, they're not. Um, and, and this could be both a strength or a weakness of the, of the medical model in that it, uh, it could be seen, I suppose, as absolving the addicted person of any responsibility. 
because their brain is broken. They're not. They don't have their full choice capacity. They're not able. They're not. They're not. They're. They're not right in the head. That sort of thing. And we could get into. Uh, we get into interesting ground there, asking who who is responsible for the actions of the addict. And um, I think there's a lot of room for 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 mercy and compassion here. Recognizing, you know, you don't get to that point at the edge of the waterfall for no reason. You get there through a context, and you don't get to a point of chronically losing your choice capacity just by accident. It usually takes a lot of pain and a lot of stress and a lot of uh, a lot of painful conditioning to get there. Um, mm. But at the same time, you don't you also don't want to leave a person in that canoe saying, oh, yeah, you're just destined for that and you're going to do it. And there's no hope for you because that's just hopeless. So what the what the trick is, is to say, OK, so there's a lot of forces acting upon you. There's a lot of context acting upon you. There's a whole lot of that's happened to you that's not your fault. Uh, let's help you find what choices you can. Let's help you, let's help empower you in some way so that you can begin to cl- reclaim some of that choice capacity. So in the, um, more on the medical model itself, if the problem is uh, problems in the brain, uh, the solution would be, uh, one of the solutions anyway, it would be prevention. Just, you. Um, well, like detox, abstinence, and then more prevention. Uh, there's, there's this idea that um, you, you just can't do the thing anymore. And so uh, the abstinence model, uh, recovery equals abstinence, uh, fits very well with this particular model. Um, so uh, addiction is dysfunction of the brain. Like we said, the person is pers- possibly, pers- uh, possibly partly not responsible. The person is neither responsible for the problem nor the solution, the person is vulnerable to the effects of psychoactive substances and dopaminergic experiences. Um, I kind of like this idea, this term dopaminergic experience better than like addictive th- addictive substance, addictive experience, because uh, again, like the, the word addiction, addict, addictive, they're, they're so big and clunky, they, they almost cease to have some meaning in a way. Uh, specifically what we're talking about, we're talking about intense experiences that are intensely dopaminergic. They give you a lot of dopamine, a lot of that pleasure, uh, or maybe like high adrenaline, they give you that excitement. Um, so, and again, substances can do that. Ex- some experiences can do that. Sex and porn, chocolate ice cream, rock climbing, um, or base jumping, you know, those, those sorts of things, they, they give you a lot of dopamine. And so it's, the, um, it's that aspect of the experience we wanna pay attention to. Um, okay. Other thoughts about the biomedical model. Pros, uh, factors in the body. That's really important because our bodies are always with us. This approach can be very non-shaming, non-stigmatizing, kind of. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess you don't wanna walk around being like, I have this disease. Okay, okay, so maybe it can be stigmatizing, but, um, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's not punitive in the way that the criminal model is. Um, this model offers a decent answer to the question of why does our willpower fail? Uh, it's because we're not terrible people. We're not moral failures. And for, for us as Christian people, it's not even like we're bad Christians because we're, we're relapsing. It's there's something legitimately not functioning correctly in the brains that we have. Um, other pro, uh, if we call it a disease, then insurance will cover treatment. Just flat out got to say that. Um, Cons to this approach. Uh, so treatment approaches can be very behavior oriented and limited in that way. 
Um, they are subjected to all that comes with like a, a Western model of medicine. It's often very uh, treat the symptom oriented. It's very problem oriented. We need a problem to be treating and we'll probably only treat the symptom once it shows up. Um, not always big on prevention. Um, and, and like we said, it brings up some interesting questions around choice and responsibility and doesn't necessarily answer those. Um, one other limitation to the disease model is it doesn't really factor in trauma so well, or it doesn't do justice to what that impact is. Um, and there can be something really minimizing and to say to, to look at a person who's been severely traumatized and say, oh, you have a disease uh, and that's why you do what you do, uh, rather than giving do justice and honor to saying like, oh yeah, you have been incredibly hurt and traumatized in all of these ways and now you're coping any way you can or you're, um, you're seeking soothing in, in some way. So there's that. Um, there can be this tone of uh, once you're an addict, you're always an addict, um, which again, it can show up in some of the 12-step the culture. Um, as, as kind, kind of an attitude sometimes. Uh, I, I don't feel fully comfortable embracing this idea. Kind of like, um, I don't feel, I don't really like the term addict. I, I, I've used it a couple of times in conversation already. Again, just because like for, for shorthand, for point of reference, it's, it's easy because you kind of know who you're talking about. But, but really, I think, it's, I think it's a more harmful term than not. Um, I, at some point, I will, we'll debate that a little bit. Um, but, but there's this idea that you have this addictive disease, that's who you are, that's who you're going to be, you're just kind of stuck there. And something about that, and I don't feel, I guess, and maybe this is just me, uh, uh, I don't feel comfortable embracing that because I want to believe there's more hope than that. Um, this particular model relies on the hijacking power of the chemicals themselves. Uh, so... Much as it is an improvement over the temperance model that says like the substances themselves are bad, it does kind of say the substances are bad. Um, but it, but I guess it also says that something's also wrong with the person, or specifically in the brain. And there's this idea that, um, that, that yeah, there, there's this idea that we we get this disease from the chemicals. Like heroin is so incredibly powerful that once you use it, you can't stop using it. Or like. Um, like cocaine is so so addictive that once you stop, once you start, you can't stop. Or you know, thinking pornography, this idea that like you know, once you see pornography, like you can't stop looking at it because like the power is in the porn itself. Um, and and again, we can look at these experiences and we can recognize them as legitimately dopaminergic. And and there is a thing uh, called chemical dependency or physical dependency on the chemicals that, that that's different from addiction. Um, we'll, we'll bring that up again when we talk about assessment and, and diagnoses and things. But um, but the, I, I, I think that there can be a false power ascribed to the substances and behaviors themselves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which again, referencing, I was I was picking on uh, like this whole idea of like accountability software and like strict abstinence and just like recovery by avoiding the thing altogether. Um, yeah, it can be good to avoid the things, and that might be the thing you need to do. But that's not recovery all by itself. Uh, if indeed there is a disease, like the disease needs to be healed through through other means, or like the brain itself needs to heal, the the traumatized soul needs to heal. Um, 
Yeah, it's not that the it's not that the substances aren't powerful. They 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 are, but um, but you know, a whole bunch of people have taken the, these really powerful opiates for for pain relief, or have been prescribed them, and then stopped doing them when the when it's when it's all over and been fine. Or like we mentioned, like a whole lot of people have used a whole lot of drugs in college, and then stops most of them, uh, maybe even all of them, and, and they're fine. And a whole lot of people at some point just stop using drugs, like when they get old, when they get old and can't do them, and and they're fine. Um, so, so this idea that these chemicals themselves are inherently addictive, I think that idea breaks down and needs to be reexamined a little bit. Um, and because again, there's, there, there's other factors. Um, well, we'll talk about, uh, the trauma model, the biopsychosocial model, the, the diathesis stress theory that talk about, uh, it's, um, it's, it's the right dopaminergic experience that interacts with a susceptible host in the right environment, in the right context. And then you have an addiction that makes a lot more sense, but we're going to get to that. Um, okay. Uh, clinical implications of the disease model, the biomedical model. Um, best course of action is prevention, uh, preventing further use through education around social skills and self-regulation. So basically, te- you know, helping people to get clean and then teaching them how to regulate their moods in healthy ways, teaching them how to have healthy connections with people and how to have purpose in life, uh, which that's great. Those are those are all good things. We, those are, those are great. Sometimes you need a little bit more than that, but (laughs) there's nothing wrong with those things. Um, and when we're, and we could say where those methods, uh, initially seem to fail, we could consider medical intervention. Um, there, there's uh, a lot of details that I don't know about this, but it's, it's, it's really interesting conversation around, uh, using drugs to help with drug treatment. So for example, like methadone or suboxone or naltrexone or Chantix or, um, these other chemicals that we can take to help us uh, break our dependence on other chemicals. Um, it's another intervention, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it's great, and it's kind of controversial, but for the people for whom it's helpful, it's it's really helpful. And then there's some people for whom it's not so helpful, but it's, it's still in development. There is a question that could come up since we're talking about the body and the brain and some genes, we could ask, is neurobiology destiny? Like, are you your genes? Are you your body? Are you, are you the disease within you? And that's an interesting question. And, uh, one, I think the, uh, the uh, science fiction writers get to play with a whole lot. There's some interesting stories there. Um, I'm going to say, no, I don't think it is. It, would be really easy for it to be because then I could just do what feels most comfortable. And I know some people want to do that, but uh, I'm going to say, I, again, me me as a Christian and speaking to other Christians, I think the uh, one of the things that, uh, well, one of the things that I think sets humans apart from, from animals is the ability to transcend ourselves. There are the capacity to transcend our natural primal urges and do something remarkable or do something different. Uh, or do something intentionally do something that's not comfortable or that's difficult in sure hope of a greater greater benefit spiritual integration points disease model give some credence to the disease of sin um, emphasizing the need for healing over punishment 
uh, and again, there, there's that, that's a shift from uh, looking at sin as uh, surely a legal violation and making God angry and more of this idea of like, you know, we have this disease of sin and God is actually a merciful healer. Uh, he's not actually out to get us. Um, there's, there's a shift from, uh, you know, Western to Eastern theology there. But anyway, um, at the same time, uh, this model does not fully allow for, oh yeah, so at the same time, the, the biomedical model, it doesn't, I don't think it fully allows for the redemptive transcending of natural inclinations, which we just talked about. So, okay. I think that is all we'll say about that for now. I have some other quotes and comments that are interesting. Mm, okay. Okay. I guess one other difference between the the moral model and the medical model in the in a uh, in the war on drugs approach, um, addiction is a legal issue, and in the medical model, it becomes more of a public health issue, which I think is an improvement. Uh, this one's kind of interesting. So the evolutionary compensatory model uh, of addiction, trying to explain addiction, uh, it says um, addictive compulsive behavior patterns arise as adaptations to stressful situations. This would make sense. Um, stressful situation comes up and we want to survive it or we want to soothe from it. Um, there, So there's... Um, I, I think we'll, we'll try to fully explain more, more of the brain science a, a little bit later, or I'll, I'll try and draw it out later. For now, though, um, so there's so some, some brief, uh, brief, brief brain science, so uh, some important parts of the brain to consider. So if you, so if you make a fist with your thumb inside and, and say, you know, okay, here's the brain. It's a very nice brain. Um, and your wrist represents your, your brain stem and... Um, your pointer finger represents your your uh, prefrontal cortex, the front of the brain, and then um, there's a back brain, and then your thumb is your middle brain. Anyway, so uh, core components of the brain to, to consider. So your your front brain, your your neocortex, your prefrontal cortex, that that area, that's the what we often call your your higher functioning, the part of your brain that's responsible for connecting with others, connecting with the world around you rational thought, um, abstract thought, poetry, romance, spirituality, um, math that involves letters and imaginary things, <laughs> and, uh, and, and all of that, all of that emotional attunement, wonderful, rational goodness. Um, and that's the, this very thin layer up here at the top. Uh, in the middle of the rain is a collection of pieces uh, call all together that make up the limbic system. So the limbic system, uh, it handle. It's also called the, the the animal brain or the old brain. It processes your your bodily functions, your emotions. Uh, it all of the senses feed in feed in through the limbic system and they're processed there. And um, more particularly in the limbic system is the fight or flight. The fight flight. Flight, fight, freeze system. That's hard to say. Um, the your your stress response. Uh, so so what happens is that from deep within the the limbic system will through the senses through the eyes through the nose through the ears they'll perceive danger of some sort and it could be like there's a bear there's the in-laws there's a bumper sticker for the other president. Um, uh, there's, uh, there, there's something there, there's something that will be distressing in some way. And so, so the idea is that, 
the, the idea is that the brain is then going to, is going to perceive the danger and then mobilize all of the resources you have within you to uh, to address it in some way, whether that's through flight um, and running away, connecting with somebody, or um, or fighting, uh, st- sticking behind to to destroy the thing. Uh, or if those fail, then you have your, your freeze response where you can't do anything and you crumble, and that, that's actually where trauma comes from. Um, what's interesting, though, is so so once the limbic system gets activated and then the stressor is there, then the front brain tends to go offline and go crazy. And now now the now the, the, the animal brain, sometimes a very, very primal, like a little child brain, is running the show, and that's part of why we make like, these irrational choices that we do. Um, so, so why is dopamine important here? So part of, part of what we're going to do is um, through throughout throughout our day throughout our lives um, we're going to encounter things that give us little bumps of dopamine and, and the the original idea was to say ooh um, like these these berries they're they're super sweet we like that we want to come back the idea being these have you know sugar and nutrients and energy for us or like hey uh, uh, some you know good tasty foods that are good for for energy for nourishment we we want we want to remember those and how to get back to those and so the brain assigns a a dopamine tag to that and that interfaces with like memory so you both remember what it is and how to get back to it and you tend to crave it more and more so that you can have it because back in the day high dopamine meant it was good for you kind of the same thing with sex the idea is like hey this is nice. This gives us a lot of dopamine. We should do this again and again. And that's good for us because it means that it, it eventually we're going to perpetuate the species. Um, so, th- so that's the idea. Anyway, where, so, so where this response has tended to go wrong is that then, 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 drugs, then drugs become involved or then, then alcohol becomes involved or then uh, pornography becomes involved. These experiences that don't just give us a little dopamine rush, but they give us a dopamine flood. Uh, and so what that does, this is where that the hijacking of the brain could come in, is it sort of tricks the brain to say, hey, you're stressed, you're offline, what's the best thing for survival right now? And the, limbic, the little kid animal limbic system is going to say, what the thing that will be best for us is the thing that gives us the most dopamine the most quickly. And maybe it'll be like, ooh, let's go use some porn. That'll, that'll give us a whole bunch of dopamine and we'll, we'll survive, the, the, survive that way. Or let's go drink. That'll, that'll be good for us in that way. Or um, something like that. So, um, so where the, the evolutionary model uh, plays in here is it says that um, uh, we are, we're needing to respond to these stressful situations. And the, this original mechanism we have hasn't yet adapted to the world we have in today where um, we have pleasurable things that can kill us, and uh, and that's not that that hasn't always been the case. Um, there's also a way that um, the the world we have it doesn't have the same level of level of like imminent threat that other eras have had. So 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 the so you know it used to be like you know very high threat you know very low dopamine uh, and, and it kind of worked. Because it was like you know tigers and berries or, or whatever it was. Uh, now though, it's like uh, you know for for a lot of people, and then, I mean this is a, a little bit of a privileged statement to say like the dangers aren't as great. Because I mean 
I'm white, the dangers for me aren't that much. So, but for other people, it's a lot different. But the idea is like, you know, we're, we're not as afraid of like wild beasts roaming the earth, for example. Um, so maybe like the threat level is a little bit lower, but we're capable of having the dopamine level be way higher. And so everything's out of balance. So that's, that, that's challenging. Um, so threat's not quite as big. Uh, pleasures are quite a bit more deadly. Uh, definitely more exaggerated than what they've historically been. Like kind of the difference between like uh, like vanilla sex and like pornography. It's like I mean they're both sexual experiences, but one's like an extremely exaggerated experience. And again, the brain just isn't made to handle that. Um, so the other uh, the other thing that can happen is today's pleasurable experiences can override our desires for natural and healthy things. Uh, so one and one example there is uh, what happens with porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Um, you could say like the natural and the, 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 the natural and the healthy thing would be to want to um, have sex with a person, um, you know, heteronormatively with with, uh, with the person of the other gender, um, with with the goal of you know reproducing um that if that if that's the the original natural you know uh intent of it um now there's so many other varieties available and and some of them some of them quite exaggerated and again in 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 the pornography world in the, in the digital world um just like the the things you you view and they're just so very different than that and so much more exaggerated than that and if that's say all you've ever done or that's what you do the most um the um, your brain accustoms to that and 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 again if the if the idea is to seek out that 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 dopamine rush um you know if you can easily get that constant dopamine flood whereas like actual actual dopamine oxytocin via a real person is like kind of inaccessible for whatever reasons then yeah you're going to be drawn to you're going to be drawn to the porn, um, and then what? What happens then is that your instincts, your system, even your body adjusts to that, to where your body is accustomed to becoming aroused to this digital world, and it's forgotten how to become aroused to to a real person. And so, part of the part of the recovery from that um, usually means pulling back from the digital world altogether. Uh, sometimes even taking a break from from masturbation too to uh, let your body do do a do a reset phase uh, or or seek to do that sort of thing. If I had another thought, it's gone. Anyway, uh, so that's kind of the gist of what the evolutionary model of addiction says: is that um, uh, addictive behaviors um, are adaptations to stressful situations, but the uh, Tools we have to, to to the tools we have to address the situations and the stressful situations themselves are much different than they used to be. Um, and oh, here's here's what I was gonna say. So uh, uh, and again, um, refer- referencing back to this idea of like it does that does the porn itself have 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 power? Um, so so we, so we could look at the person who you know maybe they're. They're, they're they're looking at more porn than than they're having sex with a real person, and that's um, and and the porn is overriding their desire for for natural sex um, or sex with people. Uh, again, 
that's not necessarily that that's not the porn's fault necessarily and and fault isn't the best word it's not uh, that the porn is not completely responsible for that we could say the person the person does the person is there in the first place because of a variety of other things that have happened too uh and and here again the what sorts of traumas the other person has experienced or what sorts of chronic stress does the other person experience? What's their internal chemistry? What's their family system? Um, you know, like a person doesn't just, well, in this specific example I'm using with, with porn, like a person doesn't just seek out uh, digital sexual experiences for no reason. They're, they're, they're responding to something. It's, it's an adaptation to a stressful situation. And if we're going to do really good therapy, we want to figure out what is that stressful situation, that internally stressful situation that, you know, a long time ago and as a little child stressful situation um, that, you're, that you're still adapting to. And can we help your, your logical mind, your emotional mind, and your, and your body and your limbic system all recognize, hey, that stressful situation isn't actually happening anymore. You don't have to use this adaptation. Uh, you know, that's, that's the work that we do or that we should be doing. So, okay, so the problem, according to the evolutionary model, is the substance of the behavior is the problem. The adaptive mechanism has become recontextualized and become maladaptive. Uh, fancy, fancy speak for saying... Um, like you're trying to use a hammer to make banana bread. Um, so, I mean, so, so speaking to those who, who are currently in caught up in an acting out cycle, um, the, the idea is that, uh, again, at some point, you are, you are a small person going through stress, going through trauma. And at that point, uh, you did this very remarkable, wonderful thing, uh, which is you, you survived it. Don't know how you survived it, uh, but somehow you did, and you did it probably by using whatever means you had available to do that. Maybe it was acting out angrily. Maybe it was starting fires. Maybe it was drinking. Maybe it was smoking. Maybe it was gaming. Maybe it was compulsive masturbation. Maybe it was you know this thing or that thing. Maybe it was food, but you or maybe it was just you dissociate and fracture and like create alternate egos. That that's one there too. Um, but but somehow you survived all of your painful experiences up till now, and that should be celebrated. That should be recognized to say you are an incredibly adaptive, clever human being. Uh, the the trick is is that you you picked up whatever tools you could find along the way, uh, and but now you're in an all new context. Now you're you're no longer a kid. You're no longer in that stressful situation. Maybe you're no longer at home at your original home anymore. Uh, so now. You maybe found um, some old like mechanics tools, like they're like rusty and dirty on the field. You figured out what to do with them, um, but now you're in this fine, pristine like French bakery setting and being called upon to do these really like beautiful things. But you have these really ugly tools, these old grody tools, um, and it's not that you failed by having those tools. It's that you just need new tools, new new adaptive mechanisms. And so the trick is recognizing what are the what are the old mechanisms? Why did you pick those up? Can you let, put those down? What are some new ones, some healthy ones? Can you pick those up? So our solution here is new tools in, in a new context. We'd say the person is uh, not necessarily responsible for the developing the problem, but that they are responsible for their own recovery. Um, pros of this approach 
could be that it factors in your context and your history. That's really important. Knowing your story and why you've done the things you've done is, is really important. Uh, and I like how this model can highlight the adaptive people, the adaptive nature of people and be more non-shaming. Cons could be potentially that it deflects responsibility, that it says, again, um, oh, you were, you, were, you, were just you were just figuring stuff out, like it's not really your fault, like, um, which again, that, that's like pushing it kind of to an extreme, but I mean, there's that potential, I suppose. Clinical implications, this model could prioritize education and retraining, reconditioning, uh, knowing more about uh, the, the substances and the behaviors, that's good. Knowing more about trauma, that's really good. Knowing more about yourself, that's really good. Knowing more about how to live in a healthy, healthy, functional, connected way, that, that, that's really good too. Spiritual integration points to consider, uh, you know, salvation is a process, so is recovery. And, you know, there's this way, a sense of, you know, we were probably conditioned into addiction and will be conditioned out of it. And that's going to happen through a process of, you know, daily rituals, disciplines, practices that promote health for us. And it's very similar to healthy spiritual growth, too. It's, it's a lot of rhythm, ritual, routine, a lot of practice, a lot of work to, to, to grow in salvation, to, to grow in holiness there. So um, briefly, we'll talk about the educational model of what addiction is. And this one um, has some similarities to, to the temperance model, I suppose. Uh, this one will say that addiction is a result of lacking accurate information about the dangers of addictive substances and behaviors. And the idea is that if people could have all of the facts and make fully informed decisions, they would not become addicts. Um, there's something nice about that idea. There's something nice about that idea, uh, and there is certainly a lot of value and benefit to edu education. Uh, the the problem with this one is that it assumes that um, addiction is a logical process, and it's absolutely not a logical process. It's very irrational, very sublogical, uh, and so there there's a lot of people who know exactly what drugs do and still do them, and there's a lot of people who know exactly what they're doing when they're acting out and why it's bad for them and they still do it um so uh it I, I think it certainly helps to be able to know when you when you do this thing here's what it's doing in your brain um but, but it's also very important to remember that um <laughs> you're, you're not when you're when you're acting out you're not using your educated logical brain you're using your primal instinctive intuitive emotional brain so so that would be the severe limitation of this model. But, but we, absolutely, we absolutely should educate ourselves and educate others about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, this model would say addiction is preventable and can be cured with facts. Uh, and uh, there's just a lot, of, a lot of limits to that. So I think that's all we'll say about that there. So, so referencing the, um, the, net, the, the drawing I had drawn of the, um, like the four corners of what's involved with addiction, uh, you have to look at the, the person who's doing the, the stuff, the stuff that's being done, uh, and you also have to look at the uh, environment in which it's being done and, and the, the purpose and reason for it. Uh, so we've been bouncing back and forth between uh, some of those different corners. Mostly something's wrong with the person or something's wrong with the thing. Um, so here's where we start to get into the uh, something's wrong with the environment uh, aspect of it. So... There's a couple of different models we'll hit here. Uh, a little bit today, more more next time. Um, psychological model, 
what it says, the problem is addiction is a result of uh, abnormality of psychopathology or other mental illness. And I'll say the solution is recovery means learning better coping skills, problem-solving methods, and mental disciplines. For instance, mindfulness. Uh, addiction, then, is a harmful, maladaptive behavior. Um, unhealthy learned behaviors in response to the environment uh, that originates in thoughts and beliefs that create feelings that induce behaviors. Um, so, so this is the one that's going to be very focused. Uh, it's going to be focused on the on the inner person. I guess we could have put it in a different corner to say something's wrong with the person, um, but it's more like the the internal environment of the person's mind than their body. Okay, maybe it belongs in the other corner, um, but but the idea is that yeah, some again, not just something's wrong with the brain, but something's wrong with the mind. Something's wrong with how you formulate thought, how you conceive ideas, and and how you cope with things. So um, you have some sort of mental illness, um, and or some sort of mental neurological diversity, and you cope with life the best way you can and that has happened to be through addictions because those that's what was available that's what you learned how to do and again once we get into this one i think is when we can start really getting out of looking just at drugs because there's going to be a lot of other maladaptive behaviors you do too so it's going to be i mean you can think about things like abusing food or abusing sex or self-harm or or anger or rage or or uh, or things like that. Um, the the person who maybe doesn't have full access to all of their capabilities or full control of all of their capabilities, they again they they adapt any way they can, and some of those um, adaptive mechanisms cause some problems. So we say the person in this model is uh, either mentally ill or just adapting poorly. Uh, pros to this approach, um, it's becoming more holistic, looking at more of the person, more of their internal uh, environment, and that's good. Um, this model recognizes comorbidity and underlying factors. Um, comorbidity is really important too. Um, so so jargon, jargon moment, so thinking uh, comorbid disorders, co-occurring disorders, dual disorders. Uh, I believe that the current preferred term is co-occurring disorders, but it's this idea that you you don't just have a substance abuse disorder, but you also have a mental disorder too. It's not just that you're abusing alcohol, but you also have depression. You don't just abuse cocaine, but you also have anxiety. You know, you don't just, uh, you know, you're not just using drugs, you also have trauma, that sort of thing. So factoring in that, that whole, whole context, that's a good move because there are always underlying factors. And, and I, would, I, I would say co-occurring disorders are more the norm than not. And, and it sh I would say it should be standard in all counseling contexts to be assessing for co-occurring disorders or at least screening for, screening for both. Um, that's gonna look different if you're in a mental health primary or addictions primary context. Um, I mean, I tend to think um, that that, that bifurcation is, is kind of artificial and kind of unhelpful and uh, and kind of regrettable, but, um, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, what we can do, though, is in whatever context we're at, to always be asking about the other one. So if you're doing more mental health work, you know, always ask about addiction. Always ask about drugs and alcohol. Always ask about, um, you know, problematic sexual behavior. Always ask about how they eat in the relationship with food. 
um, you know, always, always, if not assume, always wonder or suppose if there's some sort of compulsive behavior going on. Um, likewise, if you're working in a primarily uh, addictions, chemical dependency related context, you know, ask, always ask about trauma when it's appropriate, of course, but, but always, always assume that there's trauma. In that case, you can make that assumption pretty safely, I think. Uh, I mean, especially like, like the higher, the higher level of care you go in chemical dependency work, like the safer it is to assume that there's trauma in there, I would say. And, you know, always ask about, you know, depression and anxiety and what's stressful for them and how they've coped with, um, coped with distress and things because they, they, they always go together. Uh, a con of this model is that it can perpetuate the idea, what I think is like the, the mythical idea of the addictive personality, because uh, that maybe carries this idea that, well, some, some, some pathology, some people are just pathologically addictive to things. And, uh, and I, I, I think that carries the, the, the wrong impression. Um, clinical implications, um, up to half of people seeking help for addictions have other significant, significant mental health disorders. Uh, and again, there will be a slide at some point that has more statistics, but uh, uh, it's high, the number of people who have a comorbid disorder. So uh, spiritual integration points, uh, there is the reality that our, our thoughts determine our lives. Our, our, our inner world dictates and drives our outer lives and our outer behaviors. And so, yes, we should be uh, targeting that and putting a lot of emphasis and energy into understanding and deciphering the the inner world so okay i think that is close to time because looking ahead the other models we want to talk about are really interesting okay here's one short one um okay a couple a couple short ones and then we'll do more i don't want to try to fit family systems in here because it's just too interesting um so the developmental model um, what this one says, people are best understood in the context of their larger arc of development. Uh, and the pr problem is immature pursuit of selfish desires. And so the solution is learning delayed gratification, rational thought, and empathy. Um, so, so the idea is, you know, so looking at, looking at little kids, they, they have no impulse control, they have no empathy, they have no context for like prioritizing people over themselves and they just, they want what they want at whatever cost. Uh, and we could say in one sense, addiction is some getting, getting stuck in that phase to some degree or another. And that when you're acting out and pursuing whatever your, your drug of choice is, whatever your fix is, that it's, um, it's an extension of, uh, of immaturity of, of arrested development. And, um, and so, Part of what you need is some some reparenting, some more nurture, some more education. Um, <clears throat> there's some some benefits to that that idea, and because there, I mean, there is that aspect, um, addiction, or acting out. There's an inherently selfish, self-centered, preoccupied component to it. Um, sometimes it's overlaid with a lot of self self-loathing, and that that's kind of complex. But but there's that. Um, I'm kind of just, just like fixated on myself one way or the other. And that we could say is a sign of, uh, of, of arrested development immaturity. Um, pros of this approach, it works well with a trauma reenactment model that assumes development has been interrupted by something uh, or, or lots of things uh, horrendous because it, it usually is some... Um, severe like deprivation or neglect or... 
um, like parenting attachment failure or the, the addition of some sort of big trauma that will cause this. Um, and the cons could be is that this approach could be really reductionistic if all of the emphasis is just on uh, learning new skills. Um, and clinical implications. It is definitely highly beneficial to understand a person's whole context. Um, it's very, uh, very good to perform a biopsychosocial assessment and to collect a comprehensive timeline of a person that takes more time, but it's worth it. You get to see a lot of patterns there. Um, spiritual integration points. Uh, we do note that, um, at least in the uh, the biblical world, we, we uh, mark a progression, an ideal progression from, from youth and foolishness to, to old age and wisdom. So a uh, sociocultural model, and we'll end here. Um, addiction harms individuals and groups and can only be fully understood in the context of societal groups. Um, well, maybe you have to come back to this one more. So there's this idea that you're, you, you might act out and use drugs because you're responding to a stressor, but a lot of those stressors are not just like, oh, I had a bad day at work, uh, and not even like, oh, I'm like getting sexually assaulted by so-and-so, but like, <laughs> like, I'm a poor black boy and I'm in danger all of the time because I'm a poor black boy, uh, in a ghetto neighborhood or, um... I'm, <laughs> I'm a queer person in a really, really conservative, straight environment. And like, if I have to like hide, if I'm gonna survive, uh, or, you know, people who live in chronic poverty or uh, chronic danger or, or that sort of thing. Um, like you get into these big um, cultural, uh, cultural oppression, uh, the, these, these oppressive systems within our culture and society that um, deny privilege and deny resources to whole groups of people. And you have whole groups of people who intergenerationally are living in heightened stress, heightened danger, and chronic, chronic deprivation of resources. And yeah, there's, there's a higher, high likelihood that addiction is gonna come out of this. Um, again, not from like moral failing and, or anything, just because like you gotta cope somehow. And so if that's what's available, that's what's available. So. So there's this other idea here. Addiction is caused or facilitated by societal standards, cultural influences, both like here's a trauma around you, but also like how you, what you see in media. Um, I mean, we see addiction portrayed and kind of glorified in the media sometimes. Um, cultures of poverty, homelessness, lack of privilege, abuse. There's those. Recovery here would ideally be um, education and opportunities to reinstate or fully integrate into society and gain access to the proper privileges and proper resources. Yeah, what, what, one great thing about uh, this view is that it can, it can look at addiction, again, as more of a, um, more, more of a public issue. Uh, it's, it's a societal issue that society has to address altogether, and there, there's some aspects to that. There, it's, it's complex. There, it's both a societal issue and an individual issue. Um, there, there's there's a way it comes down to an individual's growth and learning how to create choice for themselves but but there's also a way that the the addicted person uh, you know the addicted person who's had a lot of a lot of trauma the addict especially if once like homelessness gets involved too there's a way that like um, every single addicted person represents everything wrong with society all at once and there's a way that yeah society should change uh, in a lot of ways to um, to make it 
less possible to be addicted. Um, I mean, you go through, uh, I've been uh, going through Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, and, and he's very big on this point of saying addiction comes out of our uh, our society that's so very chronically like isolated and separatist. And we're, we're isolated from each other and not getting our, our, our attachment connection needs. And we're being um, pushed this narrative that says, get more stuff, get more pleasures, and you'll be happy. And that's just not true and ends up being quite damaging. So um, there's, uh, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to look at in society and, and the problems that go on there uh, as major factors in addiction. So we'll end that lecture there for today. Uh, thanks for listening along. Uh, and feel free to um, leave your discussion comments on Canvas, and that'll be great. And next time, we'll talk about uh, models like the family systems model, diathesis stress theory, biopsychosocial theory. Um, we'll see how far we get there. Um, and then after that, we'll want to talk about uh, what I think are the more comprehensive models of addiction, and that's the, um, the trauma, trauma dissociation and the detachment disorder. Uh, as well as we'll talk about what, um, you know, spiritually speaking, what is addiction. We'll, we'll talk about that too. So that's that for there, and thanks for following along, and we'll see you next time. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music